Genesis uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through to 16 says this. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain bought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also bought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Thank you, Claudia. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, the field. While they were out in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark of Cain, put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of the garden. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you might reveal yourself to us this morning through this word. Father, this is another sad passage, another tragic passage, another passage of sin tightening its grip on our world. Father, we pray you might help us to learn from it. We pray you might help us to apply it in our lives this week. Father, we pray that you might be, despite the sadness, despite the tragedy, we pray that it might be inspiration, inspirational for us and a source of great hope. Father, we pray that my words might be your words. We pray that, I, pray that I might decrease and you increase in all that is said and in all that is heard. And the people said, all right. We've been tracing the story of Genesis these past few weeks. We've been asking the big questions because Genesis, the book of 
beginnings answers for some of life's really big questions that any thinking person that scratches beneath the surface of, of their life will be asking themselves and seeking answers for. Who are we? How did we get here? And, and what went wrong? And, and, and what's the solution? And last week we heard that a big piece of the puzzle answered in that we saw the entrance of sin into the world. And the Bible's answer of what went wrong with the world is in short sin, uh, that broken relationship between man and, and God. And today we're going to see sin tighten its grip on humanity. We're going to see sin evolve. We're going to see sin sort of metastasize and, and take root and, and, and become uh, ultimately the first instance of anger and ultimately of, of murder today. So this, today's story takes place outside of the Garden of Eden. Last week, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, away from the tree of life. Uh, death is, is now certain. Uh, God provided for them some, some, some skins to cover their, their nakedness. So something has already died to cover their shame. We haven't had any instances of human death at this point, but death as a result of sin is now certain. And Cain and Abel are, are born following the fall. Two brothers, Abel uh, is a, tends the flocks and Cain is what you might call a, a horticulturalist. Cain works the soil, works the earth, and Abel, his brother, raises, raises the herds, works with, works with, with animals. In the course of time, they both come and give God an offering. It's the first offering in Scripture. They both come bearing fruits, the, the fruits of their labor, representing the labor uh, where they work. Now, it's interesting at this point to note that the text doesn't dwell on the nature of their offerings. It doesn't go into great detail about their offerings. It simply says, I think from verse 3, from memory, that God looked with favor upon Abel's offering, but not upon Cain's. I think this is, is really significant. We tend to sort of want to divide the world up into good guys and bad guys, don't we? You know, the old cowboy movies, if the guy was wearing a black hat, what was he? He was the bad, he was like an emoji, wasn't he? Like, I grew up with Darth Vader, which is just like a western in space, let's be honest. And Darth Vader, the biggest, blackest baddie of them all, right? We like very clear delineation between good guys and bad guys. But the text doesn't do that for us. I love how the Bible is real. At this point in time, there's no distinction between these two brothers. They're both working. For all we know, they're both hardworking and they both bring an offering to God. It's not as if Cain is out there slacking off while his brother Abel is, is working hard. It's not like the, 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 the parable of the, the prodigal son where you have one wayward son and one good fella staying behind tending the innocent baby lambs. It, it, it's not like that at, at this point. They both come to God. They both bring an offering. And they're simply told that the God looks with favor upon Abel's offering, but not upon his brother Cain's. We only get one little hint of, of a clue here. We only get a, a bit of a, a clue as to what is going on here. It simply says that, that Abel bought the fat portion from among the firstborn of his flock. Now, I think in ancient times, 
Flocks weren't like massive Australian flocks and herds. They were tended to be small, maybe a few animals, maybe a dozen if you were particularly wealthy. So the giving the, the firstborn of your flock was a, was a sacrifice because you weren't certain that there'd be any more coming along. It's not like Australian farmers where they know how many heifers or how many ewes are pregnant and they have a rough idea of what's going to happen. But, but if you offered the firstborn from among your flocks, you could well be giving God everything for the year. So you get a hint that, that Abel is trusting God. Abel is being generous. He's being open-handed. He's being open-hearted. He's saying, here I am, Lord. I'm trusting in you with what? I have. There's an openness there about Abel, if you, you read between the lines, the fat portions from among the firstborn. We don't hear any description of what Cain's offering looked like. I think in our hearts, in my mind's eye, and I suspect in probably yours, we probably think Cain's offering was maybe a little bit stingy or maybe just very precise, just being enough, only just enough to sort of qualify that sort of hard-heartedness. But you know what? It could easily have been a very impressive-looking offering as well. It could well have been that he was trying to sort of coerce God or, or manipulate God, trying to put on a show. What seems to be the issue here is that it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. It's a heart thing. It's a, it's, it's a question of, what does your giving really say about you? I think that's the lesson we can, we can take away here. Uh, God only accepts faith-fueled offerings. Hebrews chapter 11 offers us a little bit of a commentary on this episode, by the way, in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, but it does give us a bit of a, a, bit of a brief commentary in chapter 11 if you want to look it up. And Hebrews 11 says that, Abel offered his offering by faith. So that seems to be the distinction. Abel stepped out in faith to give God his very best, and it, which is an interesting thing to say because Cain surely had faith. But this is a point in time when God is still walking and talking with the people of the earth. So Cain certainly believed in God, yet Hebrews describes Abel's offering as being made in faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6 from memory, it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. So have a look at your offerings. And I don't just mean the money. I mean your offerings of time, talent, and treasure. What do they say about you? What does it reveal about your heart, about where your heart truly lies? So Cain at this point gets resentful. Cain gets a little bit miffed, a little bit ticked off. He's in a bit of a huff. Uh, he's, uh, he, you might insert your own colourful Australian idiom about, what, what, about the brain space, about where Cain is at the moment. You get the sense that he's angry. He's angry with his brother Abel and he's angry with God. He seems to be frustrated and, and put perturbed and a little bit stroppy and resentful of, of, his, of his brother. What I love about this passage, have a look. God comes to Cain at this point. God breaks into Cain and tries to rescue him from his anger. There's a tenderness here at this point. God comes to Cain and says, Cain, why is your face downcast? 
like that emoji, he's downcast, his face has fallen. I believe in the Hebrew, it, to be angry or downcast, literally the word is to, to express a fallen face, an angry face, a, a sad face. God, God's asking, what's, what's going on? He's pursuing Cain. There's a, there's a tenderness there. He's, uh, he's, he's inviting Cain to consider his own feelings, to consider the state of his own heart. God, of course, knows all of this, but he's trying to bring Cain along with him. He's trying to open Cain's eyes to do a bit of introspection and to say, There's no, it's, not, it's not your brother's fault that you're angry. It's not my fault that you're angry. He gives Cain a chance to, to repent at this stage. He gives Cain at this point a chance to turn from his anger. It seems to me here that the text is saying that, you know, it's a choice whether or not we remain in our anger. It is a choice whether or not we allow our, our emotions to get the better of us. Because in the very next breath there, you'll see God uses a startling image to describe sin. It's a very potent image, but it is a, nevertheless a very subtle image. He says, sin is crouching at your door, Cain. It's describing what seems to me to be like a crouching leopard or a tiger hiding in the bushes, springed and coiled and, and ready to pounce. It says it's desire for you. It wants to have you, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door, ready to pounce. It wants to have you, but you must master it or you must overcome it depending on the translation that you're reading. God is giving Cain a choice here. He's saying it's a choice how you choose to react to this situation. I think this is one of the really big takeaways to this passage. Yes, anger is a natural human emotion, but how we choose to react is up to us and will dictate whether or not we fall into sin because there doesn't seem to be any hint there that Cain has yet sinned. Did you notice that? God isn't accusing Cain of actually having sinned at this point. And I find that really instructive. I find that really helpful and really hopeful for me. So when I get cut off in the traffic, I don't know what your particular struggle is, but mine is I've got a pretty quick little car, and if someone's not as quick as me, I can get a little bit angry. So God is saying, hey, Pete, you've got a choice here. How are you going to react to this situation? I think that's one of the takeaways from this, this passage here. Sin is crouching at your door. First a serpent in the garden, and now this, what's going on? He, and of course we know what happens. Uh, he can't manage to master his sin. He lures his brother out, I think in verse 8 from memory, he lures his brother Abel out into the paddock, we'd call it in Australia, and there he, he kills him. Cain murders his, his brother Abel. In verse 9, God again comes to him. Have a look at the text. God again comes to him in, in, verse, in verse 9. He says, what, where's your brother? He comes to Cain again with an opportunity to, to come clean and to confess. Remember, he did the same with Adam and Eve in the garden. He comes to them. God approaches them and asks them what's happened, what's going on. Now, if you remember, Adam and Eve were at least a little bit sheepish about what had happened. Adam and Eve are at least a little bit sort of, 
They realize they've done something wrong, and they're at least you get the sense a little bit apologetic. They try to shift the blame. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. So at least Adam and Eve are at least recognizing they've done something wrong. Cain is just outright defiant at this point. We see sin advancing in the world. He outright lies to God. Have a look at the text there. I don't know, he says. He lies to God straight up. I don't know. And this famous line, am I my brother's keeper? He clearly thought that technically the answer to that question was, was, was no. Now, when I found out that I was, would be moving to Maroubra, you can imagine what every people, oh, you know who lives at Maroubra, don't you, everybody? The Bra boys. And they're famous for their famous tattoo, my brother's keeper. That was, that, what's that? Not yet, I'm booked in for next week. I kind of figure this body isn't really worth decorating, Sue, you know? I mean, to get a tattoo, you've got to have a body worth showing off. <laughs> I need to hit the gym, get boxing a bit more often. But they get it. Some of these groups, they understand. And they, let's be honest, church, they sometimes do it better than the church does in, in understanding the importance of being your brother's keeper. The church is called indeed to be on the lookout for each other. The sense that the technical word here in the Hebrew does imply sort of a sense of superiority. But, but so clearly Cain is trying to weasel his way out of his responsibility to his brother. But I would hope, church, I would hope, if I was to say to you, I, you know, I, are you your brother's keeper? Are you your, your sister's keeper in that? Are you their, their carer? their guide, their lover, the one who looks out for him. I would hope that your emphatic answer would be yes. Jesus himself calls us to just this, doesn't he? Jesus himself uh, calls us to, to, uh, to be on the lookout for, for each other. We are called to treat others as we expect to be treated, don't we? I would hope. That if anyone wants to ask us, am I my brother's keeper, my sister's keeper, my sister in Christ, my brother in Christ, that we would say yes. They're not technically answerable to us, but Cain clearly didn't understand at this point that he kind of did have a responsibility to, to care for his brother to, to a point. He's being technical. He's trying to get off on a, on a technicality. So, Again, God comes to Cain asking what's going on. He knows what's happening, trying to bring Cain with him, trying to give him, give him a, a chance to, to, to repent. Uh, he straight up lies to God, straight up is, is defiant. Uh, whereas uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 uh, tells us that we should indeed lay down our lives for our brothers and, and our sisters. And Jesus himself tells us, that we should love our neighbor as, as ourself. Thank you, sister. God, of course, isn't fooled. He tells Cain, listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the earth. Friend, please know that whenever there is injustice in the world, God knows. There is innocent blood being shed. God finds out about it. And isn't that Good to know with the news of the world at the moment. Justice will be done. 
God is a God of justice. And justice will indeed be done. Things indeed will be put right. It's a difficult conversation to have because first when we're talking about sin, it's not a very popular notion today. It's, it's seen all judgy, isn't it? notion of sin, the concept of right and wrong. But without a faith upon which to hang our lives, we really don't have any, any instance, any framework to discern anything as being right or wrong or, or, as, being, or as being up or, or, or down. And when it comes to the presence of evil in the world, something within us knows that that, that just isn't right. Even people of no faith still nevertheless have that spark of the eternal in them and, and they know right from wrong. And they cry out for justice in this world. I'm not familiar with all of your stories, but I know many of you have suffered genuine injustice in this world. I have never experienced the sort of stuff that you are seeing coming through our TV screens at the moment from the Ukraine. Terrible injustice. Innocent people being forced to flee their homes. Buildings being shelled. It's it's a difficult time. It must be extraordinarily hard for these people not to be incredibly angry. They must want justice. And I think when we talk about a vengeful God, quite often people want a happy God, a peace-loving mung beans God. But when you really push them, I think everyone kind of wants a God who is also a God of justice, yes? A God who will indeed put things to right. A God who will actually hold people to account for their actions. I know I do, and, and I have lived a blessed life, and I haven't been the victim of any industrial mil level, military grade level of injustice like we are seeing like that today. God says Abel's blood cries out to him from the soil. And Cain's Actions have consequences. He's cast out of, of God's presence. The, the blood that soaked up his brother's, the soil that broke up his, soaked up his brother's blood uh, will, will no longer yield the crops for him that it once did. He'll be a wanderer in the land. Bearing in mind, of course, that the one thing worse than death for a good Israelite, remember these book was originally written to sort of the post-Moses uh, generation of Israelites, even worse than death was to be in exile, cast out of the land. So this is a terrible punishment for Cain. He's cast away from God's presence. He's fearful of other people at this point. That's interesting, isn't it? Hang on, there's other people on the earth at this point. We haven't heard about them. Another little of a sidebar for you this morning from this text. There's more going on than what we read about in the text. If the biblical authors tell you something, it's because they want you to know it. They're telling you a story. That doesn't mean there aren't other things going on that they don't tell you about. There's other people upon the earth at this point. God has kept populating the earth, apparently. Cain is fearful of the other people now as a result. But God mercifully, again, God is merciful. This is the third time God expresses some mercy for Cain. He says, I'm going to mark you out. I'm going to protect you. It's a little bit like the equivalent of the, the, the garments of skin made for Adam and Eve. It's God graciously offering Cain some protection as a result of the, 
the elements that were a result of his own stupidity and his own failed action. So he marks, marks Cain out. Cain goes on, if you read the rest of the chapter, a little bit of homework for you all. Um, if you go through the rest of the chapter, list some of the, the descendants of Cain. He goes on to build a, a city, does his, his descendants. And indeed, one of his descendants, a particularly nasty fellow in the rest of chapter 4, is a fellow by the name of Lamech, is Cain's great, great, great grandson, I think. Lamech, at this point, we see sin continuing to take a stranglehold on the world. We see the first instance of polygamy. He has two wives. Polygamy is always a disaster, particularly for the women. So we see the first instance of polygamy, and we also see he, that he's an extremely violent man. He calls out in verse 24, I think, from memory, don't hold me to that, that if Cain is avenged seven times, I'm going to avenge 70 times seven times. He's an extremely angry man. 70 times seven, is that ringing any bells for you? I hope it is, because I want to leave you with a word of hope today. There you go, 70 times 7. The good news this morning, friends, is that we have a new Abel in Jesus Christ. We have, in fact, a perfect Abel. We have the, the one that was blameless, that didn't deserve death, the one who came into a world full of Cain's, a world full of people looking around at others, wondering if, they were getting ahead of them and getting angry and resentful as a result. A world full of people making their offerings, presenting their offerings, fulfilling a legal obligation while their hearts were very far from God. And as a result, they killed him. Abel is the first martyr, but Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed, his blood cries out for justice for you and for me. Praise God. Cain was forced to wander the earth. Jesus Christ, so too, didn't have any place to lay his head. Jesus also shed his blood, but he died by design. He died in our place. His death pays the penalty for our sins. Jesus dies for hard-hearted, resentful Cains of the world, for my murderous thoughts and deeds. Jesus' blood, like all the blood of the innocent, cries out for justice. But in the case of Jesus, his blood pleads my case. His blood pleads your case. Father, your Lord demands justice. He's a God of justice and of grace. and of God is both eternally loving and eternally just. So the blood of Christ says to the Father, Pete Chapman has wandered far from you. He's, he's sinned and he's deserving of of death, but Heavenly Father, my blood has paid the price for Pete. Isn't that good news? I'm very thankful for that. I hope you are too. But you can insert your own name in there as well. Jesus' blood is that through which we, we, we receive justice. It means that we don't have to go on earning God's love by making offerings that are going to try to twist God's arm. We don't have to impress anyone anymore. We don't have to keep looking sideways, wondering if they're doing better than we were like Cain was. Is their offering better than mine? We don't have to keep on comparing ourselves to one another. Isn't that liberating? Don't you want to live like that? Don't you want to be a 
an Abel and not a Cain? I hope you do. I hope you're wanting to be a Cain, an Abel that is liberated from looking around at what others in the world are doing. You'll find security and confidence and you'll find peace. The world needs more Abels, amen? Abels who are able to simply offer to God whatever they have, the first fruits, the fat portions of the, the firstborn of their flocks and their herds or whatever it is that you're engaged with. The Cains are out there killing each other, exploiting each other, lying about each other, elbowing each other out of the way, and they're miserable. Sin is indeed mastering them. Sin is crouching at the door and has overcome them. So friend, can I invite you to trust in the potent gospel of Jesus Christ, where Lamech cries out, I'm going to avenge 70 times 7. Jesus Christ says, calls us to forgive 70 times 7. He undoes the curse of Lamech. He sets us free from vengeance. He sets us free from death. And he calls us out into eternal life, abundant, free, resurrection life in this life and the next. So let me leave you with a few little takeaway questions. I've got a, actually a little discussion guide that, that you can download from the website for today's message. I'll have half a dozen copies out there if you would like uh, to do some more reading. There's a few little application questions at the end. You might want to take note of them now. Do I have a, a thankful heart? Am I truly thankful for what God has given me? What do my fat portions look like? Where is sin crouching at my door? The the picture here is of hidden sin. I'm a fan of the Naked Nature documentaries, and if you watch any of the David Attenborough, you'll know those stalking animals can rarely actually outrun their prey. They need to surprise them. Sin hides. Sin crouches. Where is sin crouching at your door? Where is it a little bit hidden? Where are you trying to justify sin? your sin. Take a good hard look this week. How do I typically react to disappointment? Isn't that one of the takeaways from this story is how do we react when God says no? How do I react when God says no? How should I react in light of God's grace to me in Christ? Cain never actually repented of his sin. So how do we as a church family build a community that helps one another to repent. The word just means to turn around. How do we give one another the space to repent, to come clean with each other? It can be a difficult task for the modern Australian church. We need to make sure that we are making space for people to be open and honest and transparent with another and being willing to repent of all that is not of Christ. How is... uh, Yeah. We Aussies don't like rebuking each other. I think we Aussies and we Christians in the church maybe don't even like being honest with each other. We don't like to offend um, each other. So I think that is is a big issue. We we don't want to lose face. Yeah, I think you're right, Hiroko. I think that's an interesting observation about about Aussie culture. Yep. And not just Aussies, I don't think, isn't it? I think there's plenty of other cultures around the world that don't like saying no. (laughs) 
Is it? Well, there you go. Well, there you go. Consider yourselves on warning to receive a rebuke. <laughs> yes, mate. Yeah, well, that's exactly, I think that's a terrible part of Aussie culture, the tall poppy syndrome, yeah. But I think you want to make sure that your rebuke is done out of love, right? I think if you're just cutting down a tall poppy because you're resentful of that they got tall of you, because that not that really what Cain did, right? He looked at his brother who received favor from God and he got angry. So really you'd have to say, now that you mention it, Don, I actually think, wasn't this episode of Cain and Abel the first ever tall poppy syndrome? So that's an interesting observation. But yeah, let's, I think we need to rebuke, but not cut someone down just for the sake of it because we're angry that they've done well. So yeah, that's an interesting one. <laughs> we're, we'll chat to you later, Don, but I think that is an interesting, that's an interesting one. Plenty of tall poppies around. Let's not be cutting down the tall poppies, but let's be honest and open. And if we have... Let's make sure that we're scriptural in our rebuke. Is that a good line to draw? Finally, have I taken hold of the saving blood of, of Jesus Christ for myself to cover my sins? Because it was graciously shed for me. It gives me abundant, overflowing life in this life and the next that covers over my sins. And am I willing to extend that same sort of graciousness to those who wrong me in this life? Friends, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do seek your help in applying this passage in our life this week. There are many, many difficult challenges here, Father. Dealing with emotions, dealing with anger, dealing with disappointment. How do we react, Father, when you say no? Heavenly Father, we pray that you might help us to master our emotions, to master the sin that is crouching at our door, to identify the sin that is crouching, that is lurking just around the corner. Father, we say thank you for the atoning, saving blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that calls out for justice, that provides justice for me, even though I don't deserve it. May each of us here put our trust in the saving blood of Jesus Christ, and thereby live free, live free from guilt and fear, live, fear, live free of having to look sideways, live free of resentment of others, Father. May we experience your abundant, eternal resurrection life in this life and the next. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>